Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, one of the executive editors here at BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. And Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On today's podcast, now that Lakembi has full approval for Alzheimer's disease, what's next? We spoke with Biogen CEO Chris Viebacher to find out. Follow-on financings are heating up. But how about IPOs? And Sarepta's latest controversial DMD approval. Well, as expected last week, the Alzheimer's therapy from Esai and Biogen gained full approval from FDA. It is a significant moment for biopharma and patients, to say the least. It's the first beta amyloid-directed antibody to be converted from an accelerated approval to a traditional approval for the disease. Steve, you connected with Chris Viebacher on Friday morning to discuss the launch. What did you learn? Well, we talked about how the full approval is going to unlock CMS reimbursement really making it possible for the first time to commercialize the drug in the U.S. Chris Viebacher said the approval and commercialization uh, will energize the whole field of Alzheimer's R&D, but he acknowledged that the ramp up for the Kembi is going to be slow. We talked about the challenges, and there are a lot of them. And basically, I, to start with, I suggested to him that maybe there's so many challenges that Lakembi should be really thought of more as a proof of concept but that widespread treatment of Alzheimer's might have to wait until there are therapies that are easier to administer or more effective. And he pushed back. He said that isn't likely to happen for at least five years and people aren't going to wait. Um, he said they're not going to wait for the perfect drug. So we talked about what it's going to take to make it possible for people to take the Kembi. So first, there's the challenge of identifying patients. Neurologists already have very busy schedules and there aren't enough of them and they aren't evenly distributed around the country. To treat someone in addition to diagnosing them, which is going to mean either a PET scan or a test that requires a lumbar puncture, they're going to have to get a baseline MRI, and they're going to have to get a number of MRIs over the first few months of treatment to monitor for a serious adverse effect, ARIA. Uh, and the patient's going to have to be able to get to an infusion center every other week. Anybody who's experienced caring for or helping an elderly person can understand that's going to be quite a challenge. So Viebacher said that Esai and Biogen are working with neurologist offices. They've contacted over 700 of them already to try to get them ready to meet these challenges. There's going to be a lot of work on the part of the companies to, to make it possible for patients um, to get this therapy. They're guiding for only 10,000 patients uh, being treated this year. And they're also working on kind of the next thing, right? So that's going to be filing for approval in the first quarter of next year for a subcutaneous dosing that could be a maintenance therapy. And Chris Viebacher suggested that might be a weekly uh, injection that people could do at home or have done at home um, that would be much less onerous than the infusions as something to, to keep people on maintenance going forward. So I thought this was a, a really important interview. I really think I encourage people to read this interview. There are not many things that we cover here at Biocentury that have such an enormous and immediate cachet or impact with the broader world. You know, I've had many people say to me 
so this Alzheimer's approval, is it, is it for real? What is this drug? You know, and, I, and I think there's really a lot of sentiment out there that is a mixture of hope and trepidation. I really thought, and credit to him in this interview for Vibaka, that he was not doing high fives or a victory lap or a- anything like that, actually. There was a, I don't know if I would use the word humility, but there was a certain reality of the task ahead and of, I think you used the word in your story, the moment, you know, the significance of this. And I think it's sort of really important for the public to understand two things are true at the same time. One is it's a tremendous breakthrough. Two is it doesn't change anything overnight. And there's really a lot of hurdles still. We can talk more about the invigorating the field, but I think he is right that even if that happens, there's nothing following like in the that's dramatically going to change the picture, you know, in a really short term. Selena is going to probably tell us what is going to follow. But I, I just thought that there was a, a really interesting and the tone of the interview was like now he's rolling up his sleeves to make to make this happen. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that there are, are a lot of other things that are going to be energized as a result of this, other modalities, other mechanisms of action. But because the disease is uh, is slow moving, it's going to be very difficult to develop those drugs and it's going to be very time consuming. And that's going to be, I think, enormously frustrating for patients and for their, for their families. The fact that they've got biomarkers now that FDA is willing to accept as, as a kind of guidepost to give people some confidence that they're on the right track, I think is also important. And that's something that, that Chris V. Barker highlighted in, in our conversation. Yeah, I think something we'll learn that's going to be very important is whether going into the pre-symptomatic setting gets you better efficacy, right? There's wildly different opinions on how much efficacy these current um, therapies have in the early symptomatic population. But the hypothesis is that whatever is there, it will it will be stronger if you can get the patients before they develop symptoms. And there's multiple studies going on there. And then on the biomarker front, I think another thing we're going to learn, which we've already got a glimpse of from Eli Lilly's top-line data from Denonimab, another anti-amyloid antibody, is how tau plays into this. So what we saw with denonimab is that patients that have higher levels of tau, they may not respond to an anti-amyloid treatment at all. We don't know that for certain yet. That's just an implication in the way they reported their top-line data. We'll find out more later this year when they give the full results. But that would argue that testing for tau could become important because you might want to spare those patients the risks because there are serious risks with this drug. And the thing about tau is that it comes up later than amyloid, right? So it's another indicator of this disease stage really mattering and the earlier the treatment, the better. Steve, one other thing that I think is, you know, an inescapable conversation with this is price. I know that Vibeka talked a little bit about difficulties of actually, you know, how much they had spent on this program. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about what he said there. So he said that that Biogen and Esai had put in $2 billion into the trials for Lakembi. And he said that doesn't include any of the money that they spent on uh, failures. And they spent about the same on building manufacturing capacity for the drug. 
look, most people would would look at it and argue it, it's really not relevant how much they've spent on it. It's relevant, obviously, it's relevant to the company, but I don't know that it's relevant to payers or to their families or to society. Uh, the other point that he made, though, is that it's very expensive to get people through this therapy. You know, the, the costs to um, to ESI and Biogen are going to be substantial in doing all the kind of hand-holding that's going to be necessary for neurologists and for patients. Again, you know, to identify patient, the correct patients, to assure that when a patient goes in to see a neurologist, not only can they get the diagnosis that they need, but they can get the MRIs that they're going to need uh, on an ongoing basis and that they're going to be able to, that there's going to be an infusion center that they can go to, not just for their first infusion, of course, but for all the infusions that they're going to need and that there's going to be care available to assess what to do next if um, if ARIA is detected, for example. So all of that's quite complicated and that's a lot more kind of points of touch that the companies are going to have to have than you would expect for a drug that's, you know, this price is about $26,000 a year. But those costs to the company, which you say aren't relevant to society and payers, which is a fair comment, um, I think they do, they they can matter to other companies looking to be in this space and um, this energizing effect that he discussed. And then Selena, his comment that, you know, there, there really won't be anything right on the heels of this. Um, what do you make of that? What are we looking for? Well, we're looking for Eli Lilly's data on denonimab, the full data. I think those will be really important. But yeah, in terms of other mechanisms of actions, we didn't we saw the first wave of tau antibodies fail, right? But the field learned from that about tau is just a very complicated molecule. There's lots of variants of it, splice variants and whatnot. So the you know, the field is learning how to target it. Um, but nothing's late stage and ready to to go into uh, under review, get under review. So yeah, it's going to be a while. And, and like you said, these are really big, really long trials. It takes forever to develop anything for Alzheimer's. All right, let's change gears now and take a look at the capital markets. June was the year's strongest month so far for follow-on financings. We had 22 biopharmas raise a total of 2.4 billion and that gave us a second quarter total of more than 5.5 billion and and brought the first half of the year across the 10 billion mark obviously this is quite a rebound but you know you look back a couple of years uh to the the heady days of 2020 and in June 2020, for example, we had 48 biopharmas raising 6.4 billions. Now, uh, most of the June follow-ons were preceded by clinical data or regulatory news. But what does this mean for IPOs? Historically, a strengthening follow-on market tends to precede a reopening of the IPO window, but so far, few IPOs have priced in 2023. I think the one big outlier, Acceleron, $620 million IPO. That really stood out among second quarter IPOs, about half of which were smaller offerings on Asian exchanges. 
Stock Exchange of Hong Kong, Kazdaq. We even saw two Japanese IPOs for biotech. So that's a bit of a rarity. Now, some believe the year's second half will present a more receptive market for new listings. Simone, uh, what are you hearing out there? Yeah, so follow-ons, unlike their name, really precede, you know, IPOs is what we can <laughs> tend to think. So, you know, obviously there is this question of, is this a blip or a real trend? Uh, is this a, the canary in the coal mine? Well, whichever sort of way you want to think about this. Obviously, there's no way it's bad news, right, to have an increase in follow-ons and some real numbers starting to happen is relevant. I think it's important to note also the timing when you look at the IPOs recently, most of them are in June. Admittedly, like you say, not many of them are NASDAQ and some of them are what we would consider relatively small ticket items. So it, it's hard to draw too many conclusions. However, the, you know, you got to look at a few more signals. Our colleague Edwin Zhang ran a story that he called XBI Rising that is basically seeing biotech slightly outperform the broader markets. We all know the S&P itself is up a little bit this quarter or this half. And broader than that, you know, everything I'm listening to is, well, every quarter we don't have a recession makes the chance of a recession that bit lower, right? Theoretically, right? So we didn't, didn't have one. And, you know, people generally seem to be more optimistic that we're looking at a recovery in 2024. I don't think there's a lot of optimism of, of massive financing before then. Everybody's always prepared to be wrong. I think the other thing that we're hearing, Jeff, and this is through various conversations with public and private investors, and, we, and we've talked about this before on the pod, there's a lot of energy out there. So I don't feel like people are walking around thinking, this is a catastrophe, we're never going to get out of it. I don't know that anybody is yet willing to say specifically when it will be. People are mm -hmm. hunkering down and we're going to have some data in the next week that looks at people's cash runway and that really looks at the financial preview for the next quarter. But I think, I, you know, tell me if you're hearing something different. What I'm hearing is that people are basically knuckling down now and doing the work they need to do. A lot of people are referring to this as a healthy pruning or correction, whatever you want. So there's sort of a sense that the people who survive this or, or make it through will have made some important decisions to manage their cash, prune or decide on the top programs and, and you know, stay above water, stay alive, as it were. Yeah. And so Edwin and uh, our colleague Stephen Hansen are uh, busy working on the BioCentury 3Q financial markets preview. They are hearing from bankers and investors that as far as IPOs go, it's very case by case at the moment. And, and companies really have to hit hot themes, obesity, metabolism, immunology, inflammation. And they have to be late stage, but even then it's still risky. But now among the companies in the IPO queue, you have Apogee. They are looking to go public on NASDAQ and they are trying to test the market's appetite for a preclinical biotech. And they would likely be the first in about eight months to seek an offering 
larger than 10 million. They just set terms this morning uh, at the midpoint. If they hit that, they raise about 250 million. Now, they, they are a bit different than um, perhaps a few of the preclinical IPOs we saw back in the, uh, the salad days of a couple years back. They have a veteran CFO and Jane Pritchett Henderson, and they're going after some familiar targets. So that will make it less of a risky play than some of its early stage peers. Another company in the queue also set terms this morning, Sajimit, uh, and they're looking to raise $75 million. Now that's a clinical stage company. So will, will the IPO market? Get going again. Anybody's guess as to when, but uh, you know, with Simone using terms like healthy pruning, it sounds like people are already beginning to feel a little more optimistic than the uh, thing that I'm going to be looking for is whether you know, there's all this talk about we don't want this rush of preclinical companies going public, and you have to have programs that are advanced and going in these areas. and. I'm sort of interested to know when the markets open up, whether this sort of health regime that we've all been put on, it's like, did you come off the diet afterwards? Are they just going to forget and start, you know, hey, I got a preclinical one and go back to the, are they going to be recidivists here? And people who've grown up with this idea that money is free, I don't think money is going to be free for a long while. So we'll see sort of what effect that actually has on behaviors and and sort of people's uh, ability to create value driving companies as opposed to what I think a lot of people think were me too kind of operations. All right. Well, uh, the accelerated approval of Sarepta's gene therapy for DMD has generated, perhaps predictably, uh, a lot of controversy. Steve, you wrote an editor's commentary last week. What's your take? Well, yeah, it was predictable. It's going to be uh, controversy. We predicted it, right? <laughs> we wrote some stories beforehand. Look, the, here's the thing. There's a complete disconnect between the perspectives of the parents of children, mostly boys who have Duchenne muscular dystrophy, DMD, and, and the FDA reviewers. The parents are absolutely certain, at least the parents who have spoken up publicly about this, are absolutely certain that Sarepta's gene therapy provided transformational benefits to their boys, and many of those who haven't received it are desperate to get access. Some of the clinicians who participated in studies of the therapy said there were improvements unlike any that they've ever seen with DMD. On the other hand, a conventional examination of the data doesn't reveal any clear connection between the therapy and clinical benefit. Peter Marks, the director of FDA Center for Biologics, looked at this and he, he overruled his staff. He granted accelerated approval for kids four through five years old. And I think that the important thing here is that Marx didn't simply adjudicate a dispute among FDA staff. That happens all the time. There was pretty much unanimous, as far as we know, feeling among FDA staff that Sarepta had failed to provide persuasive evidence of efficacy. Marx conducted his own post hoc analysis of a subset of patients that wasn't pre-specified and justified the approval based on eight patients, including two of whom who had some of the best results who didn't actually have any expression of microdystrophin. So it doesn't seem that the drug helped them at all. Several former FDA officials, from very senior officials to um, frontline reviewers, told me 
that um, the agency would never accept this kind of analysis from a drug sponsor and that they're very surprised that Marx did that analysis himself and approved the drug based on that. Parents told me that they're happy with the decision, but they're very upset that it was limited to four to five-year-olds. They don't see any biological or medical justification for that. And um, leaders of biopharma companies told me that they're concerned that the lines have been blurred between uh, compassion and scientific rigor, and that creates an unpredictable, uneven playing field that favors drug developers who have close ties to sophisticated patient advocacy groups. So there you go. It's, it's a very complicated situation. My take on the whole thing is that, like anything, the fact that the money plays an important part here. Anybody that says that it doesn't, I think, is missing something important. The therapy is priced at over $3 million. I personally think, and what, what my commentary suggested, is that the way that FDA could and should have squared this difference between where the parents are and where the data is, is that they should have suggested to um, Sarepta that they provide the therapy to anybody who feels that they um, need to have access to it on a compassionate use basis, basically for free, until the data is available to support approval of the drug using the kind of standards that FDA ordinarily would use. Steve, let me ask you something. So it's clear that your contention here, well-founded contention here, is with the way FDA has operated. And this is a very complicated story, of course. How much of it is peculiar to the company Sarepta and the disease of DMD versus extensible to other indications and diseases? Well, there, there's the problem, okay? So companies uh, produce, and, and I say, and by the way, I would say it's not only a problem of um, FDA's procedures. I, I think it's a problem um, that Sarepta didn't produce the data that um, was needed to make a, a clear decision, and I'm not sure that it was out of their control to do so. But it, of course, it isn't at all uncommon for FDA to face these very difficult decisions based on incomplete and inadequate data. What is extraordinary is that twice now, in this case for Sarepta's gene therapy, and then years ago, in the case of Janet Woodcock, when she was director of the Center for, uh, for Drugs, in the case of Exonda's 51 and Exxon skipping therapy, twice now, center directors have intervened and overturned the decisions that the FDA staff had made based on their assessments of the data. What I think that that really calls for is, one is an analysis of why did they do it in these cases and not in others. Personally, I think that the answer has to do with compassion for these kids who are afflicted with a, a, a truly terrible disease. But, you know, there are a lot of other really terrible diseases also. So I think that what this suggests is that at a minimum, FDA needs to come out with clear policies and tell patients and tell drug developers and tell the public when they're going to make these kinds of interventions. What are the criteria that they use to make these kind of extraordinary interventions to make drugs available through accelerated approval. And again, my, my feeling on it is that there should be other ways to do it in circumstances like this. And I think that this is really what expanded access or um, compassionate use was created for. 
All right, and Steve's commentary up on biocentry.com. Be sure to check that out. It's, it's a lot of food for thought there. Steve, uh, before we go, uh, we have the BioCentury show coming up this Thursday. And uh, who'd you speak to? I spoke with Najat Khan, who heads data science at J&J. And it was really a very interesting and energetic conversation about her views on really making the case for integrating data science into the operations, every aspect of the operations of a large pharmaceutical company, in her case, J&J. We spent a lot of the interview talking about how J&J is using data science for clinical development. There's been a lot of talk about the use of AI for drug discovery, and we touched on that, but she also made the case for using and explained how J&J is using data science to advance clinical development. It was really very interesting. All right, and you'll be able to find that on our website and our YouTube channel. We have uh, a bunch of our BioCentury show conversations, key opinion leaders in the biopharma space, from R&D heads to investors. Amy Schulman was on uh, just a couple weeks ago from Polaris, speaking with Simone. You can find that on the YouTube channel as well. So check it out. And we will be back next week. Thanks for tuning in. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.